Hey, good evening. It's Monday. This is our 7 p.m. book review get-together. We normally get together in person, but right now we have to do it separately. And um, today is April the 6th. This is episode, I think, uh, number 15. And tonight we're going to talk about Henry VIII's Reformation. Henry VIII's Reformation in England. This is part of our ongoing uh, study of Frank or F.W. Maddox's book, The Eternal Kingdom. Uh, tonight we're covering pages uh, 286 through 291. That's only five pages, but it's packed with information that we really need to know. These events have such background for us that are so important so that we can understand how the the Church of Christ uh, was restored uh, out of the very, very dark period of time we call the Dark Ages. And it, it took a long time and a lot of people had to do a lot of work and many people had to sacrifice many things, including uh, their lives, uh, to bring events around to where people could actually study the scriptures for themselves and learn the truth once more. So tonight is one of the key things about how that happened. But Henry VIII was no Martin Luther. Uh, he was a despicable human being. He was a tyrant. He was ruthless, brutal. He was a murderer. He was a serial adulterer, a serial fornicator. He killed people at whim. And yet, the things that happened during his reign made it possible later for other people to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, the Reformation in England uh, came about differently than it did on the continent. The information in England came about by a humanistic learning of extra biblical literature rather than the study of the Bible itself. The English Reformation was an intellectual, political, and monarchical movement uh, devoid of spiritual impulses of any kind. It was not a spiritual movement like it was on the continent. Henry VIII was not a spiritual person. He was uh, devoid of any love for God or love for the scriptures, as far as we can tell. It was all about him, his own personal power. And so the humanism that uh, brought about Reformation in England was one initially that was driven uh, by higher learning and scholasticism. And this gave way to the grasp of power uh, from the Pope by the king. And its its aim was not to supplant Roman Catholicism, uh, but to wrest power and money from Rome and transfer it to London. Uh, again, it had nothing to do on the surface about truth. It had nothing to do with the scriptures. It had nothing to do with God or the pursuit of God or the obedience to God or the love of God or any of these things. It was all one man's attempt to wrest power and wealth 
from Rome and transfer it to himself. Now, this humanism that drove the intellectual wheels in England at this time is not the kind of humanism that we uh, understand and hear about uh, today. Uh, it is uh, today's humanism uh, really makes man, uh, quote, the measure of all things, end quote, and it drives men today to atheism. It drives men to communism. It drives men to hedonism. It drives men to libertinism. And for all the, the detailed information on these matters of humanism today, I highly recommend Benjamin Riker's book, um, Moral Darwinism, How We Became Hedonists. Uh, it's, it's a fantastic book. I cannot recommend it higher. It's just every Christian should read it. Now, as the Reformation began to unfold in England, it began in a kind of an odd kind of way. People's thinking began to change back when Chaucer wrote Canterbury Tales. It was a very humanistic work of literature, and it was humanistic because it focused on the everyday lives of the everyday people as they strove to attend religious rites in Canterbury. It's a, it's a diary, as it were, of the events of the people that they experienced on their way uh, to these religious rites. But it wasn't a theological work. Uh, it, it was focused on the lives of everyday people. And this was a humanistic uh, approach using humanism in that day and time's definition, not the definition we would have today. Uh, so we want to detail some of the early English, we won't call them reformers because they really weren't, but English people who contributed to the mindset of the people that later on could accept the Reformation from the continent, if that makes any sense. Uh, so there was a man by the name of uh, Grosin. He lived from 1446 to 1519, and uh, he brought the Italian resident, res, Renaissance. He brought those ideas uh, from his uh, studies in Florence, Italy, back to Oxford University in 1491, where he began teaching both Greek and the ancient classics. Now, that might seem a little odd to you, but before this time, the ancient classics in the Greek language were not taught or learned in uh, English colleges, so he was a, a groundbreaker. Uh, in 1492, the same year that Columbus sailed, Thomas Lineker uh, translated the Greek medicinal works into English. He found some works about medicine in the ancient <clears throat> Greek literature and translated them into English for people to study. Then uh, John Collette, 1467 to 1519, went to Italy to study Greek law and the patristics, uh, the church fathers. Now, only one of these uh, early on humanists uh, who had any spiritual 
inkling was this guy, John Collette. And um, he, he was not a clergyman. Um, he wasn't ordained. He wasn't a priest. But he did uh, preach layman sermons on the teachings of Paul. He was a very religious person. So this was really groundbreaking uh, in the early 16th century. And he did more than just preach layman sermons. He, he put things to good use. He inherited a large estate from his father. And what he did, he, he uses his inheritance to establish a school for boys where uh, these new studies were taught, the Greek language, the Greek classics, that sort of thing. Then we come to uh, a very famous person. You may have heard of him before, Sir Thomas More, who lived from 1478 to 1535. And he was encouraged by uh, Thomas Lineker that we just mentioned. And financially, he was supported by the Archbishop of Canterbury. And his emphasis was that he promoted the study of Plato's Republic. He really was fascinated by that book. And also, a second book he was fascinated with was Augustine's The City of God. And he promoted the, the reading and the study of these books, whereas before they had not been. And then he wrote a book himself. His, his book uh, was really the most famous English humanist book that ever was published in those years. It was called a book called Utopia. And it was uh, printed in 1516. And it was written in Latin. And uh, in this book, Utopia, he uh, Thomas More calls for a class-free society uh, that would feature freedom of thought and action. However, he did support, continue to support, the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. Now, his advocation of freedom of thought and action prepared the English populace for uh, open revolt against the first... Uh, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, and secondly, the open civil war against the Anglican Charles II by the Puritan Oliver Cromwell in the mid-17th century. So he's laying some building blocks for future generations to actually put this freedom of thought and action into real thought and action. And uh, the influence of this humanistic studies uh, Wycliffe and Tyndall's English Bible translations, the Geneva Bible, and the continual sharing of the uh, Continental Reform Movement, uh, plus the political uh, break between Rome and London, all combined uh, to make England a hotbed of Reformation theology for hundreds of years. And uh, for more information on this aspect, uh, please uh, go to TracesOfTheKingdom.org, where um, you can see how the Church of Christ is is traced back in English history all the way back to uh, 1066 and uh, Norman the Conqueror's Conquest. Now, the Reformation in England uh, took a much different turn, as we said, than it did uh, in the continent of Europe. Europe's Reformation was a bottoms-up movement, whereas England's was a top down movement. Henry VIII thought of himself as a top-flight theologian, uh, totally qualified to lead a, quote, one-man reformation, end quote. Henry saw reformation as a mere tool 
in his power struggle with Rome and had no care whatsoever in things spiritual, as far as we can tell. Now, theologically speaking, the only reform Henry was interested in was uh, replacing the Pope with himself. The English Reformation revolved around but one issue, that was the divorce request of Henry and Catherine of Aragon. He wanted to divorce her, period. That was the only thing that drove the train here initially. Uh, the divorce uh, tale really kind of wagged the theological dog in, in England in this regard. Henry VIII uh, was the second of two sons of Henry VII. He had an older brother by the name of Arthur. And uh, Arthur married uh, Catherine of Aragon. Aragon is in Spain. And uh, she happened to be the niece of Charles V, who happened to be the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. And so it was a very uh, important politically arranged uh, marriage between Arthur and Catherine of Aragon. Now, in a, a strange arrangement, at least strange to us, uh, Arthur, while still a boy, uh, was married to the much older Catherine in an arranged marriage, and Arthur died young before the consummation of the marriage could take place, and Henry, not wanting to return Catherine's huge dowry to Spain, married her. Now, she was a sickly person uh, who bore him seven children, but only one lived beyond infancy, and that was Mary, the Catholic competitor to her half-sister Elizabeth, that we'll talk about in future episodes. Now, when uh, Mary was still young, Henry tried to marry her off to a French prince. The church refused permission because uh, of a cloud over Henry's marriage to his former sister-in-law, uh, which had to have special approval from the Pope uh, that was then uh, in power, Pope Julius II. It was this dilemma that caused Henry's decision to divorce Catherine, though he had fallen in love with Anne Boleyn while he was still married to Catherine. So in 1527, uh, Henry uh, appealed to the new Pope, Clement VII, in 1527 for an annulment. Uh, being uh, he could not and would not infuriate the then much more powerful and rich Charles VII, the, the Pope refused. Now Henry lost. So Henry broke with Rome, proclaiming himself, quote, the vicar of Christ. The vicar of Christ in England. Pretty scary stuff. Um, seems doubtful he was a believer. He was so brazen. Now, uh, most of the Roman Catholic Church hierarchy in England uh, went along with Henry, thinking this was just a, a brief spat and things would soon return to normal. Uh, Henry's case was defended by Thomas Cramner, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He entered into negotiations and advocacy of Henry with Rome in 1533. Now, Cramner became the de facto leader of the English Reformation and the, the dismantling of Catholicism in England. So in 
1534, Henry VIII became the, quote, supreme head, end quote, of the Church of England and was certified as such by Parliament. Every English um, monarch since has had the same parliamentary title since, including Elizabeth II, who is now reigning. Now, uh, just as a side note here, it is for this reason that uh, no Christian college among us should invite the very popular English Anglican bishop N.T. Wright to speak, uh, as sadly David Lipscomb and also Oklahoma Christian have recently done and lauded him as a, a great teacher, etc. But uh, N.T. Wright um, should never speak before a Christian body uh, and give, be given the honor of being a great teacher because N.T. Wright uh, accepts Elizabeth as head of the church and not Christ himself. And um, the groundswell of support for this man among us is it's, it's really shocking and appalling. Uh, no denomination was founded upon adultery except Anglicanism. And that's a sad fact. Now, uh, when Parliament made Henry the Vicar of Christ, quote-unquote, for the Church of England, it, it stripped away the rights of any of Henry's children except those who would uh, come through Anne Boleyn to ascend to the throne. All the king's men were to swear their allegiance to Anne's children as heirs, and the aforementioned Catholic uh, Sir Thomas More and others refused and were summarily taken to the Tower of London and executed. Henry was, of course, excommunicated by the Pope, and the nation was placed under the interdict, so nobody could receive sacraments. Uh, but it didn't really matter anymore to the people um, because they had uh, rejected the uh, Roman Catholic uh, clergy already. Um, their legitimacy was already nullified due to years of uh, corruption <laughs> excuse me, and plunder. And so the nobility fell in line pretty much for Henry uh, because of the enormous profit potential of uh, seizing uh, papal property. We'll talk about that a little bit more here in just a minute. Now, in addition to the moral and monetary abuses, the clergy at the time was weak. Uh, the Archbishop of York at the time uh, stated a couple of things. First of all, he said he had but 12 priests who could even preach a sermon. And he had only four bishops who actually lived in their assigned diocese. So it was a very weak situation. Uh, Henry's power, however, uh, only covered matters of uh, legalities and jurisdiction. The power of ordination continued to uh, rest with the clerical hierarchy. Now, this transfer of power from pope to king was seen as no big deal by both king and parliament. They thought they were just simply restoring things as they were in historical English rights to self-government, not subject to any foreign power, temporal or ecclesiastical. In fact, it was 
a declaration of independence of sorts, as as it were. And uh, it stated, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that England was not subject to any law. England was not subject to any statute. England was not subject to any canon. England was not subject to any decree, and England was not subject to any position that surrendered English sovereignty to any third party. Politically, it was a reaffirmation of the Magna Carta. It was a preview of the much-heralded recent Brexit, where England once again has rejected power and control from the continent of Europe. In 1539, one of the largest single transfers of wealth in history took place as some $250 million of papal property in England was seized by the crown. And reformers, though of a spiritual mindset on the continent, saw this as an opportunity to turn the political reformation in England into a spiritual one. And so uh, they wrote up a document known as the Ten Articles. The Tenic Articles, Ten Articles, uh, raced ahead of Henry, <laughs> and he he um, reared back with six articles of his own. Now these uh, ten articles that the reformers drew up uh, initially said, uh, number one, there was no such thing as transubstantiation. Uh, number two, there were only three sacraments, not seven. Number three, uh, they are to be no prayers to the saints. Number four, there was to be no worship of saints. Uh, number five, no prayers for the dead. Number six, no celibacy for the priest. And uh, number seven, no private masses or uh, confessionals. Now, uh, Henry didn't want to push back against Catholicism. He was just pushing back against the Pope. He wanted the power and the money, but he didn't want to change the theology. So he uh, didn't want to have anything to do with these continental reformers. So he... Uh, cast aside the ten articles and came up with the six articles. Now the six articles put back transubstantiation and celibacy for priests. It also put back the confessionals and private masses. Now Henry never embraced uh, theological Protestantism. Um, the Protestants, uh, after these six articles were uh, published by Henry, uh, they, the Protestants were driven out of England as far as they could. And even Tyndall was forced out of England, and uh, he fled to the Netherlands, where sadly he was captured and burned at the stake. And it is said that his last words were a prayer, and that prayer is, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. And so, there you have it. The Reformation of Henry VIII, for what it is. It was a despicable thing in history. But, God moves in mysterious ways, and because of Henry's abuses, a door flung open for later study and access to the Word of God 
a benefit and a blessing of which we are recipients uh, today. Let us never forget of the sacrifices that many underwent for you and I. God bless you and thanks for listening today.